Most Americans these last weeks are very familiar with loads of cash coming from Washington, D.C., but not everyone knows what currency represented and why it became the standard medium of exchange. Today, we go over the basics of currency creation, what happens when there is a lot of currency, and what might we be able to do to hedge against possible outcomes of all of that cash. The Culinary Libertarian Podcast, Episode 140. Welcome to the Culinary Libertarian Podcast, where the philosophy is free, but the food is on you. Hello, folks. Dan Reed here, the Culinary Libertarian. Welcome back to the podcast. Happy to have you here. Happy to be here. If you're in-school experience has been more than you can think about for next academic year, consider homeschooling. Use my affiliate link, culinarylibertarian.com slash homeschool, to learn about the Ron Paul curriculum. Ron Paul curriculum frees you parents up with self-taught, video-based, reading and writing intensive lessons that focus on a free market economy and limited government. I did an episode on homeschooling options, culinarylibertarian.com slash 100. Save your sanity and homeschool next fall, culinarylibertarian.com slash homeschool. My guest today is Anthony Davies, co-host and the numbers side of the Words and Numbers podcast. Anthony is the Milton Friedman Distinguished Fellow at the Foundation for Economic Education, and it is in his capacity as an economist I've invited him on the show today. Hello, Anthony. Thank you for joining me, and welcome back to the Culinary Libertarian Podcast. Thanks for having me. When we spoke last, we talked about profit, but any talk of profit also has to include a conversation about prices, which... To some degree, we did. Today, I've invited you to talk money, which will then get into some other aspects of that green paper we trade with. Let's start with a first with a quick hello and introduction by you of you for anybody who didn't catch our first episode, and then we'll plot down this course I have chosen for us. Well, I'm Anthony Davies. I'm professor of economics at Duquesne University in Pittsburgh and co-host of the podcast Words and Numbers. And if you are interested in these sorts of topics, we have a book that you can find on Amazon, Cooperation and Coercion. And I will put a link to that book on the show notes page, which today will be culinarylibertarian.com slash 140. All right, before we get rolling here, I want to clear up a colloquial point that's maybe going to be a stumble in this episode, both for us as the speakers and possibly for the listeners. We're going to use the word money to mean currency, but most everybody recognizes or at least acknowledges that the green pieces of paper are money, and it's it's not a distinction without a difference, but it isn't the point of, it's not worth tripping over ourselves to be precise. Yeah. Yeah. And I, th- I think one of the, one of the problems that we have when we talk about money is we, we exist in an advanced economy and we have become so advanced that we forget what money is. And, and so a lot of people attribute these magical properties to it that it simply doesn't have. And it, it's helpful to understand money, to go back and look at why it was invented in the first place. And there's a beautiful example here. Um, you bake pies and, and I mow lawns and you need your lawn mowed and I'd like a pie. And so what do we do? Well, we make an agreement. You bake me a pie and I mow your lawn and we exchange and that, that exchange is the core of everything that we call the economy. So you could go all the way to esoteric things like futures and options and repos, all this stuff. All of it comes back to this root of, I want a pie and you want your lawn mode and we exchange. Now, that creates a problem 
because as, as good as your pies are, they have a certain shelf life, right? And you need your lawn mowed every week. And I can't eat a pie every single week. You probably right? so, shouldn't so anyway. <laughs> right, I probably shouldn't anyway. So what do I do? Well, I put them in the cabinet, right? Except that they don't keep for a long period of time. So I've, I've got this problem. So, so what do I need? What I need is some way to have access to your pies on an as-needed basis. And that's where the invention of money comes along, that I'll mow your lawn, and instead of you giving me a pie, you give me a piece of paper. And this piece of paper entitles me to come back at some point in the future and hand you the paper and I can get the pie. So what the money really does, it's an invention that facilitates that exchange of goods and services. That's all it does. It facilitates the exchange of goods and services. Your example of the piece of paper to be redeemed at some future point for the pie is a perfect example, and it's going to get us to the next spot of a substitute. The green pieces of paper in our pocket used to be the substitute for, for gold or for silver, or it could be for pies or seashells or beaver pelts. But the idea that there is this substitute, this piece of paper as the exchange thing, is is a concept, I think, probably that is not understood, if it's even known. And one of the things I want to get to today, but let's jump ahead a couple hundred years. And in, in, in today's world, we've seen... I, to make it easier, the government has printed what five trillion green pieces of paper, or created them digitally. Which right, is another conversation. I don't want to get too confusing. So now we have made all these other things, but let's. I want to start with a a fairly simple explanation of a really complicated scenario about how the Treasury and the Federal Reserve work together to create currency. Then we'll talk about where it goes. Yeah, and it's I, I wouldn't say work together necessarily, or at least in theory, they're not supposed to be working together. The Federal Reserve, we call it the Fed for short, the Fed is supposed to be independent. But what's what happens is the government needs to raise money to fund its spending. You know, we get all bent out of shape about deficit spending and where does the government get the money to, to pay for the things it pays for? Well, part of it comes from tax revenues and a huge chunk comes from borrowing. And that's where the treasury comes in. The, the government borrows money from the rest of us. It issues us pieces of paper. <laughs> we call them treasury bills, but it says here, have these pieces of paper, give us money for them. And later on, you can cash in these treasury bills. We'll give you money plus interest back. And this is the way the government has borrowed, you know, since, since it began. But we've come into a problem in perhaps the past decade. And that is our federal government has borrowed so much money. There really aren't many people left to borrow from. Now, I, I say that cautiously because there are still people who loan to the federal government, but they tend to be loaning to the federal government at a slower and slower pace relative to how much the federal government wants to borrow. And so you've got this problem. The federal government wants to borrow more money and people aren't lending it. What happens? Well, the Federal Reserve comes in and the Federal Reserve is, we, we call it the lender of last resort. It loans the government money. And here's the kicker. When the Federal Reserve loans money to the government, unlike anybody else loaning money to the government, what we have is more money, new money coming into the system that didn't exist before. Because where does the Federal government, where does the Federal Reserve get its money? It prints it. So when the federal government borrows from the Fed, the Fed is printing money, and now we have an increase in the money supply. And we can go back to our example of the pie and the mowing of the lawns. And, you know, I, I mow your lawn in exchange for the pie, and we create, we use money to facilitate that transaction. But notice something. If the Federal Reserve comes along and starts printing more money, it hasn't done anything. What I mean by it hasn't done anything, it hasn't done anything meaningful. There are no more pies than there were before. There are no more lawn mowings 
than there were before. There's simply more pieces of paper floating around. And, and this is the core misunderstanding, I think, that people have of money. They think that money is wealth, and it isn't. It's a tool for acquiring wealth. The wealth is the goods and services. And if you print more money, you don't have more goods and services. You simply have more pieces of paper. That is, and I'm going to get to that. And that is, I think, even, and I'm not, I haven't mastered this idea, but it is a complicated idea to put your brain around because you can, unlike in just about any other example of stuff, you can go to your cabinet and see that your cabinet is either bare, you have next to nothing, you have no ingredients, or your cabinet is full. You have lots of ingredients. And so it's obvious with all of these ingredients, you have so many more options. You clearly have more things to work with. And it seems like that should be the case because we understand less and more as concepts. If I have more green pieces of paper, obviously I'm better off. <laughs> We're going we're gonna to try and slay this dragon in a few minutes. Um, <clears throat> so the so so the, the process, one of the things I think is interesting, we talked, you said the word borrow, and part of that borrowing is from other countries, but some right. of that borrowing is, and this is where it's really strange, another really bizarre thing to think about is, you're borrowing from a future point in time. Yes. And and that's like, it starts to make your head hurt. You say, well, how, wait a minute. If you're, if I'm going to go as the consumer, I'm going to go, I'm going to go borrow $10,000 to redo my kitchen. It's going to be a pretty, pretty crappy redo, but, you know, I'm going to borrow money from the bank. And the bank can, this is for easy discussion, the bank has $10,000 to lend me. I get the check, I deposit it into some, presumably somewhere. I go buy stuff from the home improvement place and I go buy tile and things and I make my kitchen fine and I pay them back over time. If I'm going, if, if I'm the Federal Reserve, I am printing a check, the Treasury is cashing it, and that money doesn't exist until. <laughs> My children have jobs and are paying taxes into a system. So now that $10,000 I'm borrowing from the government or that $5,000 check or whatever that thing is that we got from stimulus money, okay, it was, say, 5000 in your pocket today, but over the next, what, 10, 15, 20 years, it's going to cost you $3,000 to pay it back. What reasonable person agrees to this? Right, yeah, and the... No reasonable person would agree to that. And I think part of what goes on here is we have in the back of our minds that somebody else is going to pay it back. So, so the Federal Reserve, or excuse me, the federal government cuts me a stimulus check for whatever, let's say $1,000. And, um, you know, if, if, if I'm aware of just a little bit about how the world works. I understand it. Some, in some sense, that money needs to be paid back. I'm banking on somebody else. And who's the somebody else? Well, the rich or um, future generations, something like that. But I'm hoping it's not me. Now, now here's the thing. If, if, if that f funding, if, if that, that loan is financed by taxes, it's going to have to be the rich or future generations, if not me, that has to pay the money back. If the money's financed, however, by the Federal Reserve, that is by printing dollars. So the Federal Reserve prints dollars and the government gives me a thousand of them. That comes back to me in the form of inflation, that prices go up. And so now when I go to buy a, a pie, instead of spending 20 bucks, I now have to spend 22. I now my dollars now purchase fewer things than they bought before. Why? Because printing the money doesn't change the amount of goods and services. All it does is create more dollars. Right, and that's uh, that's something I want to come back and address because there's a uh, inflation. It's going to have at least two meanings, and and there's another phrase I'm going to hold back on that we're going to introduce, which is going to. Everyone understands the word, but the idea is really screwy. And we'll get to that in a minute. So let's 
stay with the Fed for just a minute. So the Fed has made all this money and this stimulus package of one or two or whatever trillions of dollars, and the people got their paltry chicken scratch peckings. There's a lot more green pieces of paper. Who gets them first? And why, wrong phrase, how is it important that the first recipients of this cash have an impact in what's going on down the line with this cash? So who's getting, aside from you and me getting our little buy me vote thing, oh, I can't say that, um, somebody else is getting, so, you know, Grumman or McDonnell Douglas or big construction companies, big stuff is happening. And these people are getting it. So can you walk through the process of first recipients and then what's going on with the money after the cash after that? Yeah. So you, you've stumbled upon a, um, a, a really interesting topic. And, and that is when, when the Federal Reserve prints more dollars, we get inflation. But we don't get inflation immediately. It only comes later when those dollars start to circulate. So in, in the sense, you talked about who gets to spend them first. Whoever spends those new dollars first gets to benefit from the dollars without the incumbent inflation. So typically the way this works is the Federal Reserve purchases treasury bills. The federal government receives the cash. They're the first ones to spend it. They get to spend it while prices are still low. When that money hits your pocket and my pocket and we go to the store and we use it to buy things and the store owner now uses it to pay their employees and it starts to circulate, then you start to get the inflation. So whoever gets the first bite of the apple of that newly printed money makes out better than anybody else. So how do I get to be one of those people? Oh, you don't. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's nice. All right. So... So let's, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to repeat some of these concepts because I want to make sure that everybody gets it, including me. So the Federal Reserve and the Treasury basically invent currency out of thin air. In most cases, that the, the predominant amount of that is going to central banks or the government, and then it's going to, say, defense contractors or giant construction companies or something else is happening to it. And in the course of... Northrop Grumman making things, they're paying employees and the employees and then taking these wages and they're going to the grocery stores and the bars and the bowling alleys and the sporting goods stores and they're buying stuff. And now this currency is working its way through the system and everyone is trading and doing their things. So is it, it's kind of crude, but is that a decent explanation of what's going on? Yeah, it, it is. Now, Something worth noting here, we started to do serious uh, money printing, I would say back in 2008, and it's kind of persisted and it got a, you know, uh, was increased again uh, during um, COVID. And, and a lot of people will say, all right, well, you've got all this money printing going on. Where's the inflation? Because really, we weren't seeing inflation until round about this month or last month when it started to really hit the news. And so people would say to me, this thing you're telling me about printing money can't be right because the Federal Reserve has been printing money and we're not seeing the inflation. And particularly people were saying this to me back in April of last year. And, and I said, hang on, look at the stock market. When we went from March to April to May and the economy contracted to, it was the second largest contraction in the economy since the Great Depression. And businesses are going bankrupt all over the place. People are out of work. The unemployment rate shoots up to 14%. And yet the stock market is going up. And people looked at that. They said, how can that be? How can the stock market be doing so well when the economy is in tatters? And my response is, as the Federal Reserve was printing money, that money was not making its way into markets for goods and services. It was making its way into financial markets. And what happened in financial markets? Prices of financial assets, stocks, bonds, go up. Now, here's the thing. When we calculate inflation, we only look at the prices of goods and services. We don't look at the prices of financial instruments. And so my argument is we were seeing inflation. 
back in March, April of last year. It just wasn't in the goods and services market. So we didn't call it inflation. We called it a run up in stock prices. That's where the money was going. Or crypto, Bitcoin. Or, or crypto or Bitcoin, these sorts of things, right? Now, now what's happened is what I predicted back in March of April of last year, which is I said, look, when things start to settle down, when we come out of lockdown and businesses feel more comfortable about expanding and people are back to work, that money is going to start to move. It's going to move from financial markets into goods and services markets. And it's at that point you're going to start to see the inflation. And lo and behold, that's exactly what we're experiencing. Okay, so we're getting to the point where this is the really hard part. And you and I in the Words and Numbers backstage group had a, a very short exchange about how to make the idea plain that if I have more green pieces of paper, why am I not richer? Now, I tried to yep. explain this to my 14-year-old, but I just got tongue-tied because it's it's – Maybe it's easy, but it wasn't easy for me. So in the illustration I had, which you had a counter, my illustration to her to try to make this visual was imagine an inkwell. And we, we can all sort of visualize a little one or two ounce bottle of black ink. And you write with your quill pen and everything's perfect. You can read it. It's just fine. But now you add 50% water to this. And your legibility is cut in half. So now you have right. you have more ink, but you actually don't. You have you have a bigger bottle of stuff, but the original amount of ink remains the same. So let's add two cups of water to one ounce of ink. Still have the same amount of ink, but now we we just have we have more liquid, but we don't have we have seriously lacking. We have. Uh, no, we have drastically reduced our legibility of our ring. Right. So we may have to go over it again and again and again and again just to see what the words are. Now, I, I think at least it illustrates the point. You had a different explanation, but can you try to add to? Yeah, I, 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 I like that. That's a, it's a good way to think about it, where the ink is the goods and the services. That's the thing you actually want. I want ink on the paper diluting it with water doesn't, it gives me more of a, it looks like I have more ink, but actually I don't. I've got the same amount of ink I had before. All I've done is cre created a, a larger volume. The example I give to my students is I say, look, you think money's so important. Suppose I offer you a suitcase of a million dollars. You have a million dollars. The catch is um, you're going to be dropped on a desert island. It's you, a palm tree, sand, and that's it. That's the only thing there. You owe and your case, suitcase of a million dollars. And how happy you're going to be. And clearly you say, well, I'm not going to be happy at all. There's nothing to buy. And that's the point. It's not the dollars that matter. It's what the dollars buy that matters. And printing more dollars does not give you more things to buy. It just gives you more pieces of paper. Right. So we have, it seems, there's an inverse relationship between the amount of green pieces of paper we have and the prices of goods and services. Now, that leads into this other really possibly very challenging idea, which is value. We don't all value things the same. Now, you and I are looking at each other on a video, even though that's not being recorded, and I can see some books behind you. Now, I value books in the aggregate, but I may not value those particular books, whereas you may find those books indispensable. So their, their relative worth to you is probably greater than their relative worth to me, although the cookbooks to my right are of much greater value to me probably than to you, although that, you know, for example, that might suffice. How do we, how do we explain this idea of value and account for the very real personal interpretation of value and and then try to explain how all this extra ink or cash changes those dynamics. The, the first thing to understand about value is that it's, it's subjective. It's always subjective. Things don't have inherent value. 
they have value to people. And, and so, you know, to go back to the example of the pie and the mowing of the lawns, my time in mowing your lawn is worth something to me. And it's worth something to you because you get your lawn mowed. Your time in baking your pie is worth something to you. And it's worth something to me because I get the pie. If the value of the pie were objective and the value of the lawn mowing were objective, neither one of us would ever trade for the other because one of us would be getting the shaft. If the objective value of the pie is 20 bucks and you try and sell it to me for 22, I'm, I'm not going to buy it because it's only worth $20. And if I offer you 19, you're not going to sell it because it's worth $20. And notice we never transact business. The reason we transact is precisely because the pie is less valuable to you than it is to me. Why is it less valuable to you? Because you're a great chef and you can create these pies relatively easily. So too the lawn mowing. The time spent lawn mowing is more valuable to you than it is to me. Why? Because I'm really good at it. I can do it. I do a good job. I do it quickly. You mess up the whole thing. You're not very good at it at all. And, and so we exchange precisely because you place a higher value on what I offer than I do. And I place a higher value on what you offer than, than, you, play, than, than you do. And, and, so, and so once you understand that all value is subjective and that's what causes the economy to, to do what it does, you, you realize some interesting things like, for example, I ran across somebody complaining about the amount of profit Pfizer was making off of its vaccines. And I, I don't know what the numbers were. They didn't seem extreme, but let's say for the sake of argument uh, that Pfizer makes $10 per dose profit on its vaccine. And you, you look at that and you say, well, this is horrible. Look at this profit that they're making. You know, they should sell it for less. And I say, hang on, how much profit are you making off the vaccine? You who go and get it. And you say, well, I'm not making any profit at all. It's a, yes, you are. It's just not measured in dollars. And the reason I know you're making a profit is because you're willing to get up out of your chair and go and get this vaccine. In fact, you're lining up waiting to get it. It's valuable to you. It has a subjective value. And one of the, one of the problems we have with, with people being very hard on companies that make profit is that we can see how much profit they make. You can't see how much profit we, the consumer, make because it requires comparing in your mind what you actually paid for something to what you would have been willing to pay if you had to. If I had to pay for my Pfizer vaccine, I'd be willing to pay probably hundreds of dollars, maybe thousands of dollars to get it. How much did I pay? Zero. I actually made more profit from the vaccine than Pfizer did. That's an interesting point, and and it is, we're going to avoid the rabbit holes of subsidies and all the other problems, and the and the FDA and and the and the big pharma. But there's there's a lot of issues there, and what we are seeing. So we have been talking about currency and money in a rather antiseptic kind of an idea way where currency is created, then a lot more currency is created, and it filters down through through the, the machinations of buying groceries and then those people go and pay daycare and all that stuff. And so that and that's not incorrect, but there's a there's a whole series of things we've excluded because it just makes what is an already challenging idea nearly impossible, and that is that the government gets involved in all kinds of things, and generally there is more unintended consequences to the bad side than there are intended consequences for the good, and those things aren't unimportant. They're worth knowing about, but it's getting out of what it is I want to focus on, which is we in in the world we are in America living in, we have a government that's printed a whole lot of cash, and we are now seeing both in the stock market and in the crypto market, and now with some 
maybe not U.S. government intervention, some gas price problems and gas availability problems and lumber problems and chicken wing problems. And there's a lot of things happening which aren't exclusively the result of extra green pieces of paper, but from an economist standpoint, how do we understand what our steps are? If if my job isn't paying me more currency, and they're not, and yours isn't, probably, then you know we can we can say it's not it's not a green currency, it's not a green piece of paper problem, the gas pump, except yeah, it really is because I only have X amount of dollars to pay the gas guy or the chicken wing guy or the lumber guy. And now this is a real problem. So what's an economist's answer to what do we do? Yeah. And I, I think there's a, there's two situations here to talk about. One is, one is how reality changes when you print a bunch of money. And the other is how, how we deal with the transition between the two realities, what we have now and what we're going to have after we have the money printed. And the, the second reality, when we print the money, where we end up, economists say, in the long run, if we double the money supply, for example, in the long run, prices of everything will double. Price of gas is going to double. Price of pies is going to double. And your income is going to double also. That's in the long run. Now, to get from here to there, there's some painful things that happen. For example, it's easy for the price of gas to change quickly. It's easy for the price of pies to change quickly. It's not easy for people's incomes to change quickly. A lot of us are into contractual relationships with our employer, something like this. And so what happens is you'll get, as, as money is printed, some prices rising, other ones not. And then the other ones will catch up later. And particularly for consumers, consumers get the fuzzy end of the sucker here because food prices, energy prices, housing prices, they will tend to go up more quickly than wages. And so in that transition, we're kind of stuck, as you say, you know, I want, the fact is that I need a gallon of gas. I only have so many pieces of paper and it's not enough to get the gallon of gas. So let's go back to the word inflation, the idea of inflation, because there's, I mentioned there's two things. There's, so what was sort of helpful to me and maybe to the listener is think about a balloon and you blow up a balloon and your balloon gets bigger, but the actual piece of rubber is exactly the same. It just looks like it's not. So the inflation of the amount of currency in the system is one way we see inflation as consumers. I'm not sure that's, you know, it's, I'm not sure it's going to satisfy the economist's standpoint. But the other inflation is in the things that we just talked about. The price of lumber, the price of chicken wings, the price of gasoline. So those two things are happening. We have inflation happening. Value remains equally subjective, although that might change. Maybe maybe I value gas less than I did a week ago. Maybe I value meat less than I did a week ago. Maybe I value home repair less than I did. And is now how how can you talk about any individual preference? But in some way, is that change in valuation? a result of inflation sometimes sometimes it is um for example you can have a situation where uh the the price of gas let's take gasoline as as an example it's rising it's rising it's rising and i'm in the market for a new car anyway and it's risen enough that i say you know what i'm going to go with an electric instead of the gas and all of a sudden now the price of gas doesn't matter to me at least not in that sense, because I'm driving the electric car. So I have, I have reacted to the price increase in such a way to, as to insulate myself from the price increase. And you get this, you know, you'll see this all the time in the kitchen, right? As the price of some particular type of, of beef starts to rise, you'll substitute 
we'll use the lower quality beef or we'll switch to chicken or something like that. And, and so people adjust their behaviors in part, in part, not in total, but in part, you can insulate yourself from these price increases by altering what it is you purchase. And I didn't want to do this, but I'm going to do it anyway. I think that there is, there's, in, so there's, there's lots of schools, lots, lots of different ways to think economically. And one of those ways of thinking economically is called the Austrian school. And they would talk about utility, the usefulness. And there is, and, and so if you, the, the classic, one of the classic examples is if you have two bushels of apples, well, you know, you'll bake pie, you'll make apple butter, you make apple sauce, you might eat a couple of apples, you might figure out how to invent apple fruit leather because you have two bushels of apples and they're going to go bad. If you have four apples, well, <laughs> wait a minute, I can't be willy-nilly and I just can't go and be experimental. So I have to change what it is I think I can do with this or, or gallons of water. If you have enough gallons of water, you can wash your car and make lemonade and give the dog a bath and drink some for yourself, make tea and coffee. Or you have a gallon, now your available options are much fewer because really the first thing is you need to drink the water. So what hopefulness Boy, put you in the role of prognosticator. What hopefulness can we find in in these trillions of green pieces of paper flitting about with no control really over how many more they might print, over where they're going to go either in the stock market, um, which I, I think reasonable people recognize is probably a bubble there, um, there's probably lots of bubbles being inflated, and at some point, something is going to come along and be the thing that pops those bubbles. And depending on who you listen to, 2008 is going to be a picnic. So, what can people do to, I guess, either insulate or protect or think about? And maybe that's a better way. How can people think about what to do for a for a long term, for a low time preference? What is a way to think about one year, two years, or five years from now? Yeah. Um, well, I'm I'm not sure because part of the answer lies outside of my field. It's a financial question. How do I insulate myself? How do I prepare for inflation? Um, I I can give some good news here, and the good news is that what we're dealing with here is a monetary phenomenon. We're printing money. We're getting inflation. If subsequently we end up at some point seeing a crash in the stock market, all of that is, is monet is a monetary phenomenon. What I mean by that is it occurs on paper. We have the same population, the same level of education. We have the same resources. We have the same infrastructure. Our ability to produce goods and services is no different than it was before. And the stock market could crash tomorrow and our ability to produce goods and services will be the same tomorrow as it is today. The, the effects are all on the financial side. Now, that's not to say there are no effects, right? Because you'll wake up tomorrow if the stock crashes and realize, oh my God, I've got half as much uh, money in my, um, in my retirement fund as what I thought. And it's going to cause you to have to make different decisions. Now, based on who you are, that might be horrible news or it might simply be inconvenient news. If I'm someone who is currently retired, that's horrible news. If I'm someone who's 30 years old, that's inconvenient news because, yeah, give another 10 years and the stock market will be back up where it was. Everything will be fine. And we go back to this discussion of the two realities in the transition. The reality after the crash is long term, isn't much different than the reality is now. It's the transition that's going to catch people of how do I deal with the fact that I need to be retiring tomorrow and all of a sudden I've lost half the value in my, in my portfolio. So that, that's, that's part, if you want to call it good news, that's, that's the good news. Um, there's something else I think it's worth talking about that's, I wouldn't call it good news, but it's at least moderate news. And that is when, when people think about inflation, 
and they their thoughts go to hyperinflation, and then their thoughts go to things like Venezuela, where the inflation is so bad. They have been printing money for so long. The inflation is so bad that people don't actually count bills anymore. When you go into a store to buy something, they weigh the money. You put it on a scale. <laughs> you know, two pounds of bills, that's about right. You can have a loaf of bread, whatever it is. That kind of inflation, we're not going to see here. My my back of the envelope, and I underline back of the envelope, my back of the, of the envelope estimate is that to sustain our federal government at its current level of deficit spending, so let's say consistent trillion-dollar deficits from here to the future, we probably would have to print enough money so that we sustain a constant 10% inflation somewhere in that range. It's certainly not the hyperinflation that Venezuela is dealing with, but it's, it's painful. We're used to 3% inflation or maybe 2%. 10% is, is, is painful, but it's not unprecedented. Back in the 1980s, we went through, actually, it was worse than that. I think we got up to 12%, it was bad. right? And there was a, yeah, yeah. And, and we survived that. And, you know, the, the sky didn't fall in and we are the same now as we were before. There was a transition. But I think that's, that's partly the good news. We're not talking about hyperinflation here, but we are talking about inflation that is um, uncommon for the current generation. My stepfather was a realtor in the, Carter yeah. Reagan transition and uh, it, man, it was tough. It, it was, it was yes. unbelievably difficult because no one was buying houses. Luckily, my mother had a job as a nurse and I had a job as a busboy at a local restaurant and uh, I, I had saved my dollars as tips and gave him what was $100 in singles and he cried. Because it was, oh, I mean, yeah. it was just, yeah, those were tough times. And I remember those times and I, I don't know how to use my rather, I mean, I was in high school, but it was infantile knowledge of economics from that experience to now, except that I, <laughs> I hope I don't cause a problem with this. I don't have any faith in cash. I have none. I mean, I'm, I'm not, I'm not, yeah. I just read something today that savings accounts are at a highest level in, in some many years, which is probably good, but maybe it's too little too late. So what I have, I'm putting into things that either don't exist like crypto or silver and gold, which do exist, but I don't trust cash. Right. And I know you're not a financial advisor, yeah. and I'm not asking you to do, to do that, but I'm just, you know, for my own self, there's, cash seems volatile. Yeah, and, and I, share your, I share your concern, maybe with this footnote, that as uncomfortable as I am with the U.S. dollar, I don't know of anything else with which I'm more comfortable. So it's the, it's the handsomest guy at the ugly guy dance. <laughs> There's some ugly guys. <laughs> but but I think this is in part this is part of what's what's pushing the popularity of crypto. People sharing this concern that we're both talking about. And I think in a lot of ways crypto and I don't know if it's any one of the existing cryptos, it might be, I don't know. But the idea of cryptocurrency is the solution to this problem. Because once cryptocurrency hits the mainstream that we feel comfortable buying and selling things with cryptocurrency, all of a sudden governments are no longer going to have the ability to do what they're doing, which is inflate their currency because they know that if they do so, people are going to just shift to crypto. Let's take a moment out for a word from Jake about his Tasting Anarchy podcast. Hey everyone, Jake here, host of the Tasting Anarchy podcast. Join my co-host Mason and I each week as we explore the world of wine and alcohol through a liberty lens. You can find us on all your major podcatchers, tastinganarchy.com or Tasting Anarchy on Twitter. Tasting Anarchy, your wine and liberty podcast. Find out how much government is in your drink. So 
tell from an economics standpoint, just back of the envelope kind of thing. And I've read, and I don't know how far along this plan is, the government wants to have their own crypto coin. But if enough people vote with their digits to go into a crypto market and get out of a cash market, it seems at some point there could be a tipping point where cash crashes. Is that... in the academic, that sounds possible. Even as an even in the academic, what happens? What happens if that happens? Yeah, and I think I I don't think it. Well, maybe crash is not a bad word. Um, I think we'll always the government can make it such that there is always a demand for the U.S. dollar, and the way it does that is by requiring that we pay our taxes in U.S. dollars. So long as they require that. We're gonna ha- there's we're going to be interested in having at least some U.S. dollars just to pay our taxes. And I I think one of the one of the things we have to be very careful of. You talk about the government having its own crypto. That's a very bad idea. Well, no, it's a good idea for the government, but it's a bad idea for the rest of us because the whole thing, what it is that makes the crypto so valuable economically is that it is outside the control of governments. A government crypto is no more valuable than the U.S. dollar. Well, and to to the anarchists and the possibly the minarchists and the all the other people who just want privacy, the inability of the government to snoop on you to control right. your purchases and say, hmm, let's see, Mr. Davies, you've had three scoops of ice cream this week. Really? Do you need another pint of ice cream? Uh, that that transaction is <laughs> not allowed. Now, that's funny. And it's like, oh, my God, that's absurd. How would that ever happen? But tell me that that idea didn't cross your mind that if they can control the digits in your debit card, that they can control the things you purchase. Oh, absolutely. I, we're talking right now about the the FDA is trying to ban menthol cigarettes. If we had a government crypto, the very first thing that would happen is the FDA would, would request that the IRS track purchases of menthol cigarettes using crypto. And then I see no reason for them not to consider that. Yeah, I, I think that's incredibly dangerous. It's not. Now you can see, you know, in, in government's defense, you can see benefits that we can track, we, the government can track, um, for example, transactions that involve human trafficking or, you know, illegal drugs or whatever it is. Okay, fine. I, I admit there's some benefit there, but I think the cost on the other side completely dwarfs that benefit. If we've got, you know, we, you said, you know, laughingly about, well, the government's going to track your purchasing of, you know, do you need another apple pie or whatever it is? Well, if we've got a serious uh, healthcare system that is managed and run by the U.S. government, all of a sudden the government has a financial incentive to do exactly that and to send me a little text saying, you already had two apple pies this week. Are you sure you should be having this third one? <laughs> Well, and it's not an unreasonable concern, even in even in the sort of dystopian um, matrix. So there's, another, there's a Hunger Games. Hunger Games kind of a thing. And I've, but all right. Well, we've we've kind of come far afield from the intent, which was to talk about the creation of currency, which is just kind of inventing cash the printing press and that going through the system and in the and the first recipients getting it so one of the things you mentioned i just want to revisit this idea because it's it i think it ties into the inflation is the first recipient so i'm the guy i'm northrop grumman or i'm a defense contractor and i get all these trillions of dollars because I haven't spent them yet and nobody else has them, I'm getting the near full purchase power of these dollars because it hasn't gone through the system yet. So with the idea of inflation, there has to be the corresponding uh, phrase or concept of dilution. And that's probably the wrong word. I don't know what the e-commerce word is, but 
with all there there has to be this trade-off. If there's more green pieces of paper, what is the what is the word that describes the opposite effect? The the opposite effect of more pieces of green paper? Yeah. Yeah, well, uh, deflation or a contraction of the of the money supply. Well, well, deflation would be good. Um yeah, yeah, I I think people people are more People, I think, are irrationally afraid of deflation. And you'll hear this from politicians. You'll even hear it from the Federal Reserve of saying, well, we have to be very careful about deflation, of dropping prices. And the thing that concerns them is that if prices start to drop, our tendency as consumers will be to put off purchasing things. So you need a new refrigerator. Well, I'm not going to buy one this week. I'm going to wait till next month because the price will probably be 5% less. And if my refrigerator is still running next month, maybe I'll wait another month. It'll be 5% less still. And so we put off our purchases and the concern is that the economy slows. And there's a, again, we go to the transition. There's a transition. If we go from a period of zero inflation to deflation, there'll be exactly that transition, but the transition will play out. And once it plays out, everything will be back to normal despite the deflation. And as an example, I give you computers, home computers, the prices of them adjusted for their quality have been dropping some ungodly amount, like 50% per 18 months or something. It's, It's an incredible drop. And this has been going on for decades. And yet there's no problem. We don't have a problem of people not buying computers people buy plenty of computers. And and so I think it's the, the, the fear of deflation is overblown. What's important here is consistent prices, whether it be inflation or deflation or prices staying the same, be consistent because as long as the, the inflation or deflation is consistent, we can plan for it. And so we live in a world, for example, with 10% inflation, there's always been 10% inflation. It will always be 10%. So when I go to rent an apartment, it's in the contract that the rent goes up 10% every month. And that's okay because it's in my employment contract that my wages go up 10% every month. Everybody has built this in to their calculations. The problem is when we think inflation is going to be one thing and it turns around and it's something else. And now we've got this transition problem of how do we get from where we were to where we're going to be now? It seems we are in some kind of a real pickle with a transition problem because if it were just as simple as inflation is 10% or it's 9% or it's actually deflation, those are things we can plan for. We have now people who are acting as omniscient whatever people and fixing the price of money to the point that it's causing some very serious problems. <laughs> that might be part three <laughs> because, yeah. well, because it's it's a the whole idea of creating currency out of thin air is a, is a big idea. We've covered some, I think, some pretty necessary but fairly big ideas. And at some point, people's brains just turn to tapioca. But it's it's not an unimportant concept, or it's not a concept, and it's, it's not an unimportant reality of what is, what is, no, this is, I'm tripping over my words because it doesn't make sense to me. What is the cost of the Fed doing what it's doing? What is the cost of holding interest rates at an artificially low level. And what does that even mean? But let's go back to, for a minute, just to that Carter-Reagan switch when my memory isn't good, but I remember, because I told you my dad was in real estate, so the prime interest rate was in the news every day. It was like the Vietnam debt. Now it's, it's, prime interest rate today is, and 12, it may have hit something unbelievable at 20%. It was obscene. No one's, no one's going to pay right. 20% on a house loan. No, and it right. turns out nobody did or nearly nobody. So few anybody's that no one bought houses. No one really bought cars. We bought junkers. We, I remember the, I remember the penny stretcher. They came out with the barter pages. 
no cash involved. I have this thing. I have two cords of wood. You got a boat? Fine. Let's take it. was crazy. And it feels yeah. like we're getting there again. And then maybe that'll be episode three. But um, all right. So you did have some good words. You had some good news, some some hopefulness. Um, before we leave, do you, do you have your, you have a, a penchant for finding the, the rose in the muck. So <laughs> now the pressure's <laughs> on, find it. Well, I, I think rather than the rose in the muck, the, the place my thoughts keep turning is to the question of what can we do to fix this problem? And, and ultimately, and I, uh, we can, and I do point blame at politicians all the time. However, politicians are like businesses. They give their customers what the customers want. Politicians give voters what voters want. And the problem is we have spent too many decades in this country asking for more and more stuff. We put our hand out and we say, give us free healthcare, give us free education, give us more whatever it is that I want for my local community. And you... On the one hand, it sounds great. Well, it would be great. And I agree 100%. It would be great if everybody had free health care. The problem is there's no such thing as free health care. It comes at a cost. So too with education. So too with everything else. When we put our hand out and ask the government for more and more stuff, politicians will comply. They'll give us the more and more stuff. And where do they get the money to pay for the more and more stuff? Ultimately, by printing money. Exactly. Printer goes were. Yeah, yeah. And that brings us to where we are now. We have ourselves to blame. Gee, that's not hopeful at all. <laughs> well, it is in the sense that, that there's a lesson here I think we all need to learn, which is quit asking for stuff. <laughs> nothing is free. No, nothing is free. And, and to borrow the phrase of a popular person on the interwebs now, clean your own room. Clean your own room. Yeah. And, you know, and I want to be careful here. It's not to say, absolutely, it is not to say that we should not be concerned with the poor among us. Absolutely, we should be. But we went way, way beyond caring for the poor among us uh, a long time ago. What it would cost to care for the poor among us is a fraction of a fraction of what we currently spend. The, the things, now I, I follow one of the senators of my state more closely than the other, partly because his interns post more crap than the other one. But it's, it's, it's like every day I have this new bill that's going to protect purple-bellied frogs in this right. particular house. Good Lord. And and everyone applauds. Yay! Oh, thank you, thank you, thank you. What a great idea. It's like, <laughs> good Lord. All right. Well, we I, I enjoy riffing with you and we could do this forever, but <laughs> it is excellent. Thank <laughs> it, you. Thank it you for having me. It wouldn't be on. productive, and that's really the point <laughs> of the show, is, is productivity. So uh thank you very much for your time today. Um just as a reminder, so everyone the show notes page with a link to the words and number podcast. And the previous episode with both Ant and James will be on the show notes page, which is culinarylibertarian.com slash 140. Anthony, thank you for your time today. Have a spectacular rest of the day there in PA. Hope things are going well and the weather is cooperating. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thanks a lot. All right, folks, that's going to do it. As I mentioned, I'll add a link to Ant and James' book, Cooperation and Coercion, and to their podcast on the show notes page, culinarylibertarian.com slash 140. Please share this episode around on your social media feeds and like it when you see it. Also, rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcatcher. Drop me an email at podcast at culinarylibertarian.com with show ideas. And if you like what I'm doing, please support the show with fiat currency by clicking the support link also on the show notes page. Have a great week, and I'll see you soon. Music for the Culinary Libertarian podcast is provided by Matthew Bankert at mattbankert.com. And so one thing that I heard James say, or you, I guess it was you said, and I'm, I'm, 
I'm interested, but this isn't for today, is how the hell did James talk you out of being an anarchist? <laughs> that's an in, that's an interesting story, actually. Well, and and maybe it's either for your show or this show, one day it could be one, but uh, it's just it's like, wait a minute, this is this is something I want well, to hear. But and and I tell you, it's um, he talked me out of it in practical terms. I still hold it up as the ideal that that's where we need to that's where we need to go in that direction. Okay, well that's. It was a closing remark on the end of one of your episodes, and and closing remarks don't afford opportunities for explanation. It's just we got to go, we got to go. So here we are. But right. it, it, as as a throwaway line, I was like, wait a minute, <laughs> <Come>. <laughs> you, you can't just end the show like that. You have to come back and say some more. 